Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Caroline Crampton, standing in for your regular host, Helen Lewis. On this week's episode, I talk to George Eaton and Stephen Bush about the dramatic Syria vote in Parliament and the Oldham by-election. And then Helen talks to Barbara Speed and Stephen again about Booker Prize winning author Marlon James and prejudice in the publishing industry. I'm here with George and Stephen, and we're going to talk about the issue of intervention in Syria. Now, the New Statesman's leader is all about this and the sort of implications for the region and the foreign affairs angle of this. So if you're interested, go and look that up. Highly recommended. But what we're going to talk about here is specifically the politics of it and particularly the very dramatic night in Parliament last night when MPs voted. So George, you've been watching all day. Um, Lots and lots of MPs wanted to speak. There was obviously this big division in the Labour Party that was reflected. Um, Can you give us a sense of what the atmosphere in the chamber was like? Yes, so um, the debate really came to life at the end and and it will be remembered for the remarkable speech that the Shadow Foreign Secretary Hilary Benn made. Um, He made an extremely passionate case for intervention delivered in, uh, in formidable style. Uh, which was greeted with, I think, unprecedented applause, a thunderous applause from MPs who are not normally supposed to applaud MPs. And from and, all sides as well. Yes, yeah, and you've just, had hesitant applause yeah. sometimes for for speeches such as those by, by Robin Cook or, or Tony Blair's last speech as Prime Minister, but this was um, spontaneous and instant. You had some MPs in tears, and obviously it was incredibly awkward for the Labour front bench because... Hilary Benn was sat next to Jeremy Corbyn, who opposes intervention with no less fervour than uh, Hilary Benn um, supports it. Um, and there's no doubt that Hilary Benn's speech did change some minds, probably changed some votes on the night. But perhaps more importantly, it also made the 66 Labour MPs who voted for airstrikes feel they'd done the right thing. It made them feel better about themselves, as, as Benn appealed to Labour's traditions of internationalism and, and anti-fascism and, and solidarity. Um, but it it did dramatise the, the split within Labour where you have the Shadow Foreign Secretary, the Deputy Leader Tom Watson, the Shadow Defence Secretary Marie Eagle and others uh, in the Shadow Cabinet on one side and, and the, the Leader Jeremy Corbyn and his Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell on the other. And 
I should just say as well, I don't think I've ever seen anything so awkward as when Sir Hilary Benn finishes his speech to thunderous applause from all around the, the chamber, and then he has to sit back down. That is parliamentary convention, that as soon as you finish speaking, you sit back down. And the chamber is so full that there's not enough space on the bench for him to sit back down. Um, so he has to, Tom Watson and Jeremy Corbyn have to sort of like awkwardly slide apart to try and make a little space for him and he kind of perches in between them and while and has to sit there between these two men who obviously he's had differences with variously over the past few days while he's being sort of given effectively a standing ovation um yeah it's just the most awkward thing I've ever seen um but so Stephen put this put this in context for us we've with Labour, this was always the plan, wasn't it? That Jeremy Corbyn was going to open the debate and Hillary Benn was going to close it. They were going to give the two opposite sides of the argument like that. Yeah, and that would, uh, was basically the way they were going to hold the, the party together. Because the party is, is badly split on it. 66% of mem- 58% of members are opposed to intervention. There was a voodoo poll done by the party itself which showed a higher number than that, but it it's not really a, a reputable one. Um, and the, the the parliamentary party is split down the middle. There probably would have been more MPs voting for bombing, uh, but there were ones who were quite nervous about what their members will do. They fear they'll be deselected or got rid of. Um, and so it was always necessary to do it. But the problem, and I say this as someone who is deeply sceptical of um, the government's case for bombing, the problem is that Jeremy Corbyn's speech was not very good not for you know so it wasn't if you can do two good speeches in that kind of debate you can do a Hillary Benn style speech which was very high on rhetoric very low on technicality but it was exceptionally well delivered or you could do what Shabana Mahmood against uh, bombing did or Yvette Cooper did for it where they were you know in in many ways technically you could say they were boring but they were they were more forensic policy with rich. The detail. they were yeah. very forensic um it, Jeremy Corbyn's speech did not have a kind of single rhetorical flourish, but it didn't have uh, any real attempt to engage with the three biggest problems with the government's case. One, this 70,000 moderate forces. Two, um, the uh, what will happen with Assad. And three, the fact that Turkey, one of our allies in bombing ISIS, is also bombing the Kurds, who are the part of the democratic government which has invited us into Iraq to bomb ISIL in the first place. So there are lots of problems with the case. And he instead, one of the main thrusts was the fact that rejection of war had been part of his leadership election. But if I'm a Tory MP who's nervous about voting for bombing, I'm not going to be won over. Mm. I, don't, I don't give a flying one about the case of, a, of, of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership election. And the most painful moment was when David Lammy, also against bombing, stood up and basically said, would you not agree that the big issue is this? And it was like watching a, a child who hasn't done their homework and someone else in the classroom starts gesturing to them. To try and help to them. To try and yeah. help them. And I mean, and it kind of comes to the, and you know, I can already see my inbox filling up, but it comes to the big problem uh, with Jeremy Corbyn, which he's not a very good frontman for Corbynism. Mm. Um, and you know and we talk about having a strong opposition you have a case that I personally think is full of holes and even lots of people who voted for it are dubious about the government's case and and it you know it was it was you know it just was not as good as it needed to be what's your assessment of Corbyn's performance there George because he it was not whatever you whatever your opinion as Stephen says it was not an empirically good speech I think um, Hillary Benn cited a whole list of members who made excellent speeches both for and against and I think 
there was some there was some good speaking but it did it did feel like he was talking all about him I think it was a, a tough speech for him in the sense there were probably things he wanted to say but which he feels he can't say in his new role as as Labour leader so he was asked several times you do you oppose um airstrikes in Iraq do you think that the existing strikes against ISIS should end there and he dodged the question and he was one of the 23 Labour MPs that wrote against it in, in 2014 but he's aware that had he said I oppose airstrikes in ISIS in Iraq which is a perfectly consistent position with with his with his position on Syria it would provoke a new row with with those who supported the intervention there and and continue to support it but Corbyn's aides last night were, were pointing out in his favour that the overwhelming majority of Labour MPs voted against their strikes. Uh, the majority of the shadow cabinet, 17 to 11, voted uh, against their strikes. So actually, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was representing the majority of you, not just among members, but among uh, the parliamentary party as well. The problem he has, of course, is that some of those shadow cabinet members who were who supported airstrikes are, are, are very senior. And, and, and very and, influential. And you have yeah. Tom Watson, who has his own mandate as deputy leader. Hilary Benn, of course the Shadow Defence Secretary, Maria Eagle. And that was why, despite flirting with the idea of, of imposing a whip on his uh, Shadow Cabinet, he was unable to do so because he was warned by Watson and others that uh, this threat of mass resignations were not, was not a bluff. Mm. And uh, he pulled back from the brink. Um, but as I write in my column, this dramatises the dilemma facing Corbyn, which is, does he opt for cooperation and peace where he preemptively offers free votes he doesn't have groups like momentum and others uh pushing mps to take a particular position uh so they feel as as they put it coerced and, and intimidated or does he opt for war which is what some of his uh radical supporters want which is to have a shadow cabinet reshuffle to make it more corbynite which is to um, to whip votes and which is to tolerate or even endorse deselection attempts. You've had Ken Livingston, one of his allies, speaking after the Syria results, saying, if my MP had voted for airstrikes in Syria, I would support a challenger against them. And at the moment, it feels as if he's trapped between uh, the the path of peace and, uh, and the path of war. And that's why you've ended up with this odd situation where he conceded a free vote, but to a lot of, of Labour MPs, it hasn't felt very free. Mm. And 66 is a is a big rebellion. It is a big rebellion. By, by any count, yes, right? Yeah. yeah, particularly when there are only 232. Yeah. Um, although the, the interesting thing, and I actually imagine by the time we go to, by the time you're listening to this, I would actually have uh, gone through the final list completely. The, the interesting thing is that there's a regional component to where the Labour rebels are MPs for. Because there are lots of Labour MPs who, who wanted to vote for it, but were scared of their members. There are some Labour MPs who are still scared of their members but have decided, you know, to hell with it. So Stella Creasy is probably at risk of deselection in Walthamstow. Heidi Alexander will probably have some problems in, in Lewisham, and they both voted for bombing anyway. But a lot of the MPs who voted for bombing are MPs in the Midlands, in bits of the Northwest where Corbyn support is not as strong among the membership. And so you're going to have this weird situation where you have members of the PLP who can't get rid of him because members who aren't in their patch love him but who aren't frightened of their members because their members agree with them and mm. think that he's a bit of an electoral disaster too. And so it'll kind of be like having two armies which can't get to one another, but nonetheless are going to have to find some way of learning to live with each other 
because yeah, the party is not big enough for both of them. But equally, it's hard to see where either side can go other than the Labour Party. It's funny. Um, well, so while the end of the debate was happening, I was at my choir rehearsal, and um, one of my friends in the choir is a big Corbyn supporter in a London CLP, and she was very down in the dumps because he was supposed to be at their CLP Christmas party last night, um, and of course he wasn't because he was miserably sat on the front bench listening to Hillary Benn make a better speech than him. But she's definitely in the former kind of camp, if you know mm. what I mean. Um, and I think there's there's a lot of people in London who are. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, basically Corbyn support is strong in London and Greater Manchester. And if you look at the... So, yeah, I think only one MP in Greater Manchester... Yeah, yeah not sorry, Greater Manchester, in Manchester itself. Um, Lucy Powell voted uh, for it. And I'm told by people in her CLP that on the... Friday meeting before the vote, she, you know, had people shouting at her. And this is someone who was selected in 2011. You know, she's not, it's not like some of these people who've been selected in 1997, whose parties have completely changed. Um, in the very, you know, the Labour left has always been strong in Manchester and London, and it's always been historically weak in the West Midlands, which is where the old right or the trade union right, uh, you know, kind of your core backers of Yvette Cooper, Gordon Brown, have always been located. And uh, then Leeds is a bit of a free-for-all. Um, and so there's going to be these interesting regional battles. And yeah, I think your friend is probably a fairly typical example yeah. of a Corbyn supporter within the Labour Party. I, I am uh, tickled, incidentally, by the idea of the great battlefield being Leeds. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, let's let's leave that subject for now and uh, turn to another big political showdown um, this week, which is the Oldham by-election. And I made me think, George, when you were talking about um, this kind of war in the PLP between these two factions, um, we, there's a similar problem in the Labour Party at large, isn't there? And Stephen, you've written a really good piece about this. Um, so, you know, people are going to the polls in Oldham today. Um, the result will be out in the early hours of, of Friday morning. But you've got two different kinds of people who would have once voted Labour and now perhaps aren't going to. Yeah, so you basically have um, sort of Labour's coalition uh, through most of the 21st, 20th century is sort of what Michael Frayne calls herbivores, so people who signed petitions, who are members of Oxfam, who boycotted Nestle because of what they were doing in Ethiopia, and then people from industrial heartlands who worked in heavy industry or in retail. or in, so, And what's basically happened is that as um, globalization has happened, those two cores have partly gentrified. Uh, and so some of that has become so some yeah there are some extra ex industrial heartlands which are now quite posh and quite Tory because yeah it's like my granddad was a miner but I work as a management consultant so the kind of that's the kind of thing which happened in Gower which Labour had held in every election since they were created and they lost last time mm. and the Gower was actually quite posh now um, and but then you have the rest of that ex industrial core which you know has you know is sceptical of immigration supportive of uh, the monarchy. And then you have the cosmopolitan side, which is much more strongly represented within the party membership. Republican, you know, 65% of Labour members are Republicans, uh, despite the fact that obviously, what, 17% of the public is, like, you, know, you know, hugely supportive of immigration. And those, and the difficulty for Labour has always been you have to hold those two groups together and you have to get a third group of what is called in that really ugly word, aspirational voters. But people who in the 50s were turned off by Labour's opposition to ITV. Uh, the Labour Party regarded ITV as private, privatisation. Dangerous privatisation oh, of, the, uh, of, um, of the state broadcaster. Of the state broadcaster and national television. I did not know that. Yeah. That's mental. In 1955, <laughs> Labour went into the election opposing the creation of ITV. Well, presumably, uh, voters were like, but this is great because now I've got three channels. Yeah. <laughs> but that has, always, that has basically always been Labour's problem. How do you hold together your traditional vote? Your traditional vote, which um, 
yeah, people like my mom, who I think basically still regards ITV as a bit sinful almost. <laughs> you know, there, there are adverts for products on there. There isn't very many educational programs. You know. There's no open university in the yeah, early hours she, of the morning. Yeah, she, she's just not into all of that kind of stuff. And then that third group. And what's happening in Oldham is basically the activist base in the kind of herbivore kind of petition signers, they love him. The core, which is overwhelmingly represented in Oldham, is like, I don't like that. They're either going to non-voting or to UKIP. And then the third vote, and they need to get, well, they don't need to get to win in Oldham, but if they want to get back into government, they need to win, um, is turned off by, um, by, by Corbyn as well, but is also turned off by the attitudes of that herbivorous group. Mm. And the question is, is there a Labour leader out there who could hold those three groups together? My instinct is there probably isn't. In the, under Corbyn, they will gain some green votes, lose a lot of votes to UKIP. Under Yvette Cooper, Andy Burnham, Liz Kendall, they would probably have held on to that UKIP vote but lost some more votes to... You get, you know, so they, in some ways, the optimistic scenario is that they won't die. They're just going through the process the Democrats did in the 70s, 80s and 90s when they went from being a party of ex-industrial areas to uh, dispossessed urbanites. Mm. The worrying small print for left-wingers is that it took 20 years for the Democrats to turn that into a coalition capable of winning back the White House. So, in other happy news, uh, George, what what kind of a result can we expect in Oldham. It's been a safe Labour seat. It's been Michael Meacher's seat for a long time. What what are we going to see? So the majority at the general election was nearly 15,000. Most in Labour expect it to be sharply reduced, perhaps uh, to a figure between 1 and 2,000. Some of the more more optimistic uh, sources think think it will be higher, but it will be much reduced because turnout will be much lower. Um, No one I've spoken to is is, is predicting defeat, but they're clear that... um, Labour would be doing much worse, they say, and could be in real trouble if they didn't have such a good candidate. So Jim McMahon um, is the leader of Oldham Council. He's also been the leader of the Labour group in the local government association, uh, recently received um, an MBE, I think, or or an OBE. And um, so a hugely respected figure and uh, seen as a local boy done good. And so they think he's uh, he's given them a, a real bounce there. Um, and, and Jeremy Corbyn's opponents and critics in the parliamentary party will very much want to claim this as, as, as Jim's victory rather than as, as Jeremy's. Because it will be hard, I imagine, to spin it as any kind of victory when uh, with a majority so sharply reduced, right? Yes, although expectations are now so low that perversely holding the seat will be seen as, as, as something, of a, something of a success. There's a happy thought. <laughs> um, but... There is also this UKIP dimension that Stephen mentioned. Um, are we likely to see UKIP coming second? Yes, certainly. Um, they've been the only... They were second at the general election. They position themselves in this campaign as, as the only party that, that can Do they do Labour, Lib Dem-style but... bar charts? <laughs> I'm sure they do. I miss um, the bar charts. I mean, the Lib Dems will be interesting. I mean, the Lib Dems are just probably hoping to keep their deposit, which, which I don't think they will do. Um, but it, UKIP clearly don't have the momentum that they had back in, in 2014 when people, were, when people were speaking about the possibility of them having um, 10 or more, 20 MPs. Mm. And of course, they only have, have one now. And, and it would be an, an extraordinary upset if, if they added to that tally in Oldham. And the problem, I mean, so the, the interesting thing about the Oldham result is that it will be, it will be a, dif- a disaster for two different parties, both of whom will not act well you know most of their members will not realize how bad it is Mm. it is terrifying for labor than they are at risk but it's also 
if you're UKIP and you feed off identity politics, off dividing people over immigration, and on the day the postal boat comes out, the leader of your main opposition says, I'm against shoot to kill, uh, which would be brilliant if it was a by-election in, in Stoke Newington, but it's pretty terrible if it's a by-election in Oldham, and you still can't win. Yeah. Like, actually, in some ways, UKIP will have some questions to ask for themselves. They've come second again. They clearly still need a... Obviously, they don't need someone who also may or may not have groped lots of people, but they need someone who can do what Lord Renard did for the Liberal Democrats because they are clearly still a bit rubbish at elections. That they've kind of plateaued. Yeah. That, like, one defector MP is is pretty much all they can they can expect at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously all that fast back in, earlier in the year when Farage resigned and then unresigned. Um, and then there was that whole period in the summer when everyone was distracted by the Labour election when I kept getting press releases from UKIP about how other people definitely hadn't resigned as well, which was suspicious. And if I'd had more time, I would have looked into it like everyone else. Um, so overall, we expect a hold from Labour, but not a particularly triumphant one. So now it's time for Stephen Bush's Joke of the Week. What have you got for us? I was tempted to say the Joke of the Week was Andy Burnham. Uh, Ooh, harsh. So Andy Burnham was once again in the headlines. So he is one of the few uh, shadow cabinet ministers who opposes, who yeah, both opposed the airstrikes in the meeting of the shadow cabinet, uh, leading to one of his allies saying, oh, ignore Andy, he's being a dick. Um, <laughs> That's quite funny. And... Um, and also, but then argued against a free vote, of, you know, for a free vote uh, in the second meeting, and then in the vote itself voted against airstrikes. Um, now, many people think that if you voted for airstrikes, your career is over. And so people are going, oh, what's Andy thinking? Uh, but the interesting thing is, of course, Andy's vote triples every time he, doubles every time he stands. He got 8% in 2010, 19% in 2015, and uh, is on course to get Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 40% in 2020, so put your money on now for Andy Burnham, leader of the Labour Party, 2025, with 80% of the vote. I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. This week, we talked about horror parody show Scream Queens, the film of the Alan Bennett play Lady in the Van, and 90s children's dog-themed TV show Wishbone. You can find us at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y or on iTunes or on the podcatcher of your choice. This week, the Booker Prize winning author Marlon James laid out his view that writers of colour were pandering to the white woman, to an implied white female reader, and indeed to actual female readers who make up the majority of people who buy fiction books in Britain. I'm joined by Barbara Speed and Stephen Bush to discuss this further. Um, 
Stephen, I'm going to start with with you because I thought this was a. I mean, I had read the original piece that he's responding to, which is by an author by Claire Bay Watkins, and she said that she had written a book of short stories, which now looking back on, she regretted almost having written in a way that she felt pandered to a white male literary establishment. And he's kind of taken this on and said, well, actually, for all writers who aren't white, we pander to a white female literary establishment. That seemed to be the, the, the kind of accusation that he was making. I mean, do you think that's fair? Um, well, a long time ago, well, not a lot, about two years ago, before I was a journalist, I worked full-time at a bookshop for some time, including for a while as their buyer, so I was responsible for stock. And he's both right and wrong, in that the average customer in every single one of the, I think, four bookshops I worked in is a woman. Mm. Um, in my last one, the average, our kind of ideal customer was a woman of relatively independent means in her early 20s with a hijab who would buy the kind of i think the type of novel he's talking about um yeah you're kind of the little coffee shops of kabul the uh in the company of grateful ladies kind of alexander mccall smith um, so he's i mean he says there is such a thing as the critically acclaimed story you see it occasionally in certain highbrow magazines and journals a stringent observed clipped wallowing in its own middle style prose and private ennui porn for certain publications and I knew from early on how to write this kind of story that would get published and later on he says about that he might very well have won a, a literary prize um, the initial favourite in the last contest I judged was a, yet again a bored suburban white woman in the middle of ennui experiences keenly observed epiphany uh, and, uh, and I think you kind of need to unpick that because there's two different things going on there aren't there there's one where he's sort of saying that there is a domestic female suburban style mm. that's going on and the second thing is and the, well, which we can come back to later, is this idea about there being female critics that are particularly holding back writers of colour. So he says, um, had I followed that, I, I should have pandered to a cultural tone set by white women, particularly older white female critics. That's the bit I really struggle with. I don't know about you, Barbara. I went and looked up mm. who had reviewed his, his book winning um, book, and I discovered that all of the reviews were written by men in the UK broadsheet. So the FT is, the Telegraph is, the LRB one is, the New Statesman one is. Um, the only one that isn't is a is in The Independent by a woman who, who loved it. She thought it was slightly too violent, and she thinks that it was challenging subject matter. But essentially, she likes it. I just don't know who is this mythical yeah, old lady she? that is ruining Marlon James's career. That's the one bit for me that I didn't resonate with me. Yeah, definitely. And there's huge evidence that women do very are not allowed to do well in the reviewing community i think maybe james's problem is he's slightly conflated commercial fiction with literary fiction because i think commercial fiction much of it is read by women it's done in quite a patronizing way which i don't think those women particularly want or warrant but um and that's probably something that's perpetrated by male publishers because the reality is that although the publishing industry the people who work in it are the majority women. The people at the heads of those publishing houses are not necessarily women. And I still don't think that we're in a, in a situation where women are defining the, the way that publishing happens at all. Um, and I, equally within the reviewing establishment, it's still very male dominated. And I think a sort of masculine, serious style is always taken more seriously. And equally, he, he wasn't reviewed by women. He probably wasn't reviewed by women because he's seen as a serious, a serious Booker-nominated man. So I think to act as though he's being done down by a one of the things I thought was quite interesting was that the other split between the reviewers was that there was I think a pretty much a fifty fifty split between white and non white men, um, which I'm guessing that if you're in the position of deciding who you want to review them 
a book about, that is about Jamaica by an author who was born in Jamaica, you sort of think, well, I probably should not pick someone who's lived their entire life in the home counties. But that's one of the things I find really interesting. We do the Vida count every year, and not just about, you know, do books by women get reviewed by women? Does it sort of kind of... Actually, when you have those... This is a really difficult point because you want to give me more diversity in reviewing, but you don't want to kind of create new ghettos, right? Where you just, you know, so, yeah. so there's like there's, you know, like that famous thing about Wikipedia creating American writers and American women writers. You don't want to kind of say that this is a special kind of literature report, you know, for one kind of people. I don't know how do you square that that circle, Stephen? Um, I mean, I think the thing is, is ultimately, if you are um, if you are serious about increasing the diversity of your commissions, you have ethnic minority. I know there's a live debate about uh, the use of the phrase of colour. Obviously, Marlon James comes from one perspective on it. I, I see the appropriation of this language of being coloured and not coloured. It feels a bit like appropriating the, I'm going to say the N-word because it will uh, mess with our podcast certification. I think the argument is invalid. I don't. There is not a value to taking on the language of oppression um, but ultimately what you ought to do is have enough uh, visible minority writers who you commission regularly enough that you don't have that awkward thing of being like, look, it's another Jamaica book, time to go to our... Mr. Jamaica. Time to go to, to Mr. Jamaica, which is kind of the, you know, the problem of the kind of what I think of as the why I as an X feel blank about why kind of school of comment pieces where someone, you know, looks earnest and ethnically out of the uh, the byline picture. I I suspect, you know, from my... Um, and I'm aware that this is potentially now a caricature of publishing because I haven't worked in the book trade for some time now, but there is sort of through the kind of mid-tier of publishing a lot of white middle-class women. So I suspect that if you are a regular author, the people who tell you, no, 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 we have to market you this way are women, even if the ultimate... You know, like, since mm. Gail Rebook's... Uh, stood down. Is there a single senior woman at the head of a major UK publishing house anymore? I don't think there is. I think there is a real yeah. issue about the fact that books kind of, like, book marketing is a very blunt instrument, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we were talking about this idea that you kind of see, okay, so uh, let me describe a book cover to you. So it is a silhouette of somebody in a long coat walking away through the snow. And you know instantly that's a certain type of thriller, yeah. right? Yeah. That's just it. Um, you know, it's uh, an a author's name and smoke. a title. Um, Ice cold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a it's an author's name in orange and pink with some little green leaves up the side. It's a mm. kind of, you know, oh, India. Oh, it's a magical place full of spices kind of book. And and I think that must feel as as an author who's written something of, of you know, 700 pages of of complexity to be then hammered into that kind of thing, mm. you know. I mean, I know lots of female authors who despise being marketed as as chiclet because they're writing about relationships. It's there, marketing is a really blunt instrument, isn't it? And, and yet, it, though, this is a publishing publishing industry that has allowed and celebrated the publication of Marlon James. This is the one thing he hasn't quite brought up in his criticism, that there is obviously a way to do this. And he says, if I had written that type of story, I would have been published a long time ago much more easily. But he's done what it seems, he seems to be saying, like he's done what he wanted and he's succeeded hugely. So we, the question really is, how has he done it when he claims that it's near impossible for everybody else. One thing I thought was really interesting reading what he said alongside the original Claire V. Watkins. So in her very long piece, right, she, she talks a lot about, um, she brings in the fact that she went on a retreat somewhere, I think somewhere like Mexico, and people were somewhere where, you know, weed is, is pretty much legal. 
Uh, and and she starts having a, a joint but someone's passed around by the hotel pool and she offers it to somebody who is I think uh, I want to say of sort of South Asian descent and they go oh, whatever I think they say Native Alaskan well, yeah Native yeah. Alaskan right that's it and and then she sort of thinks well why wouldn't you like it's cool and and, and then realises that of course she thinks you know if a policeman comes over and something then they'll, like, she'll explain it and they'll have and a she look. says we're professors why would they yeah exactly care? polite yeah. girl and they'll leave her alone which is just uh, you know which is something that is is in, bound up entirely in her, her white skin and she, she doesn't. What I think is a real difference is a real difference in in tone. I thought her tone was relatively strident, and I think that, you know, she wasn't kind of apologising for having written a book. But it, there wasn't the same kind of bullishness that you get from that Marlon James and his other Facebook posts, where he yeah. just does not seem to be troubled by self self doubt about whether or not he should ever have been published or not he was ever good enough. Like he knows he's good enough. But also, she even says she kind of ends that story about the swimming pool, and she says, "I was like hit in the face with my own privilege." And it was just there in front of me. And that's kind of, I mean, Marlon James does not at any point acknowledge he has any kind of privilege in the publishing industry, which I think is probably inaccurate. There are, the publishing industry. I think industry if he was Marlene is, James and yeah, he was a black woman, I think that would be a lot Jamaica, harder, yeah. Then and would, then his, you know, his stories would be mm-hmm. put in the women box as yeah, well. And he yeah. would have the swirly writing. Whereas, in fact, his book cover makes it look like a serious literary book, which it is. And I think the dice is loaded against all kinds of people in the publishing industry, but I think he's probably inaccurate to say that it's just people like him that are. Yeah. Suffering from and it. I think, and obviously, there is a, a live debate at the moment about the lack of uh, visible minority writers. The World Book Night shortlist uh, managed not to include any, and also included the world's most Weasley justification for it, which was um, basically we wanted to, but we didn't. And it's just like, well, if you wanted to, then there's a really simple solution, <laughs> isn't there? No, I think, I, it's a, yeah. I think it's a huge problem. Um, uh, you know, um, Bim and a woman who used to write for us, who now writes for BuzzFeed, said, you know, can you name a non-fiction book written and published this year by a black British woman? And actually you go, after a long, 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 long time thinking, the only one I could think of was Maggie Darren-Pocock, who's written for us previously. She's a space scientist, you know. Um, in the US there's been, you know, Roxanne Gay's Bad Feminist, very well-reviewed, Claudia mm-hmm. Rankin's Citizen. Yeah. But actually there are, there really, you know, there really aren't that many names that you can point to and even those people who are getting published aren't necessarily being put onto the kind of you know upcoming author circuit right and the, and literary festivals the book world is very kind of it's a very yeah, I mean, I vicious circle I have been the reserve twice in a row for the Cambridge Literature Festival <laughs> um, <laughs> you uh, haven't written a book though you can't complain until you've written a book but I think um, the thing is I think there's this trend um and it might just be the British left, so I'm not going to pretend I'm sufficiently versed in the European or American left to, to generalise all that, of, um, of effectively like left-wing people looking around a very small middle-class room and going, oh, it's not very diverse here, of which, kind of for me, the er example is ethnic minority participation at Russell Group Universities. Obviously, the number of ethnic minorities at Russell Group Universities is a scandal, but there were only, in the year I, um, my A-level cohort, there were only 168 uh, BME students with three A's at A-level. So there is a scandal, but it's actually, to make an earnest political point, it is a problem which happens a lot earlier. um, Because the flip side of the, why aren't there more black women writing... uh, non-fiction books why aren't there more uh, black women as academics why aren't there more black women getting three a's at, at a level and there's this strange thing that seems to happen on the left where different types of middle class lefty castigate each other for a problem which is deep 
profound and didn't start in the room that they're making us think in. Yeah, I got yeah. this very much. I went on um, Channel 4 News once with Bonnie Greer to talk about intersectionality in the wake of that hashtag, you know, solidarity is for white women. And she said something about class being... And I went, yes, I think absolutely class is a, a thing. And this became, oh, Helen Lewis says race isn't the problem, it's class, typical white woman. And I was kind of like, well, no, but but the two things are, it's you know, it, absolutely yeah. interlinked. And and actually, you and one of the problems we always have when we talk about diversity is that you... You know, and actually, this is funnily enough. This is exactly one of the core points that Kimberly um, Crenshaw's made about about the you know if you have a committee that looks to increase black representation, it tends to privilege black men. If you have a one that um, you know looks at female representation, it tends to privilege white women, and then you end up with black women just get screwed over totally because they don't they haven't there's no recognition of their specific problems. But that's that happens again and again when we talk about diversity is that you get a few people who are as like the dominant group as possible mm. apart from one. Mm. Well, one characteristic. Ian Katz's joke about the Guardian and even the black women there are called Rebecca. Emma. Um, <laughs> Emma. Well, I don't know what posh names are. But, um, <laughs> but the, yeah, the thing about the, the class and race intersection is that obviously I get stopped and searched a lot more than a white man. But the second I open my mouth and go, of course, officer, a lot of the time I will see this kind of 10-yard stare of dread. And so this idea that my class, yeah, the idea that my being middle class, I don't have... Mm. An advantage over even a you know a white teenager loitering somewhere who's working class, let alone a black working. But it's one of those things where it's not particularly useful. These kind of it's an it is it's it is this div- trick of divide and rule. Um, to quote two of my favourite, uh, to quote Di- Diane Abbott, yeah, it's a tactic fa- as old as colonialism. Yeah. It is a tactic as old as colonialism. Whereas Derek Harmon said this old old trick of um, of effectively of of men of white men to go. Oh, well, you know, but, but what about this division or what about this division? You know, it's the kind of classic, you know, like when someone says, why aren't there enough um, women in, in, say, you know, in, in The Spectator or some other magazine, say, for someone to go, oh, well, what about ethnic diversity? And it's just like, no, no, this isn't about having a wider understanding of diversity issues. It is about setting people who have equally valid demands on a greater share of power against each other in these pointless circular firing squads. Yeah, which is kind of what this argument about publishing is really that it's this kind of only certain groups can progress and kind of but it's also whose whose needs get addressed first which yeah. i think is the pro- which mo- which is absolutely impossible to, for anyone on the on the yeah. left to say that you know this in this situation race matters more in this situation gender matters more because it's, it's never as, as simple as that but realistically you can only be talking about one thing at mm. a time yeah but i mean there's a kind of nastiness as well in that you sort of fall into the trap, which I think James has a little bit of kind of criticising, and he just says, oh, oh, boring old white women, I don't care about them. And kind of on the Facebook status, which he first communicated these ideas, he kind of got a lot of stick from people that he really didn't understand just because he'd expressed himself badly in this quite irresponsible, thoughtless way in kind of slagging off people for no reason, yeah, which I think he didn't that... really have anything against. And he even says, I don't blame any particular women writers for this. I think there's an, an imagined idea of a female reader who's being catered to all the time, and that's a problem. And I think we can all agree about that but there were quite well-known female authors commenting just saying what are you talking about you can't say that that's 
Well, I think it also, really the problem with it is it so echoed that criticism by V.S. Nepal about, you know, men write about the universal, women write about the domestic. Yeah. And I think that was what it, unfortunately, that was the trope that it, into it, it, yeah. it played into, was the idea that women write these little little novels about, you know, little people having little problems because mm. women's problems are all kind of about kids and, you know, babies being sick and, yeah. and having too many Xanax in the kitchen. Whereas, you know, men have these epic struggles with babies and you know, kids also, taking I mean, Xanax in, in the kitchen. Kickback, because someone raised the issue that he obviously was on the Booker shortlist with Ann Tyler who now maybe seems to him to represent that exact archetype but in fact had to fight hugely as a southern white woman to write about domestic issues and was kind of seen as very outside the mainstream so because one battle has been won this is now seen as another status quo that you have to destroy whereas that seems very kind of pointless well um Stephen I know you you liked his book yeah what did you like about it so I mean I usually despise books which are written in dialect because it always feels oddly like the writer saying to the reader, no, you will read this in the voice that I have decided you will read it in. I mean, what I always like about A Suitable Boy, which I think is probably in my, one of my top five novels, um, is that uh, I always uh, read uh, Rupert Mera's, uh, the mother in A Suitable Boy's uh, voice in the voice of, sorry, mum, my mother. <laughs> um, and I quite like that I don't uh, read it in the voice of but it's um, the voices, there are multiple narrators, the voices actually feel very distinct. You don't have that problem you have in a lot of books with multiple narrators when you have to go back to the... And they get mushy. Of, yeah, and you're just like, oh, am I... And it also, I think, for me, any historical novel, I think, has succeeded when I, I leave it wanting to know more about the history. I know nothing about the history of uh, Jamaica in the, in the 1970s, and I immediately wanted to go out and find out... Um, more i was it's on i came into when i saw the long list i expected to enjoy ann tyler more and i actually said to barbara and i thought it would be nice if she won it now that americans can win it it would be nice if she mm. uh, had won one at some point in her career and actually one of the things which is nice about it and it kind of sums up why perversely i think it is also a bit of a shame that americans can now enter it is it's a great commonwealth novel and, and the man booker was for many many years uh potentially a great uh, Commonwealth pride, although obviously there are many brilliant novels from within the Commonwealth, not least A Suitable Boy, which were <laughs> egregiously You're on some not, sort of retainer, aren't you? Uh, from, a Suitable uh, Boy. Yeah. Uh, what's it face? Orbital. It's Orbital. Orion sends me a little check every time I mention it. That's A Suitable Boy, available <laughs> in all good bookstores. Um, well, yeah. Um, well, that's we've got your recommendation for a Christmas book. Um, Barbara, is there a, a book by... A, a writer from an underrepresented ca- uh, group that you'd like to recommend? I actually read and really enjoyed um, Anne Tyler's, probably her last book, which is A Spool of Blue Thread. I know Stephen doesn't agree on this, um, but I think it probably isn't her best ever work, but I think that it really represents what she does very well, which is write about those boring middle-class women of mir- middle America and kind of why they their lives are kind of filled with tragedy as well. It's not as depressing as it sounds. Um, but yeah, I think that's it, it was a good sum up, summing up of her career. And I'm going to recommend something slightly weird, which I happen to pick up because um, I love the 18th century, which is Emma Donoghue's The Woman Who Gave Birth to Rabbits, which is her series of short stories that are based around true historical fragments. There's a lot of great historical lesbianism, which is always <laughs> a plus. There's some witches, there's some weird sort of millennial cults is in it. Is she the perpetrator of room? She is, indeed. Mm. But whatever, to put your thoughts on that aside and appreciate, you know young Mary Wollstonecraft, you know, inspiring lust in a student in uh, 19th century Ireland. Um, uh, And on on that bombshell, uh, thank you very much, Stephen and Barbara. 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder. A brand new podcast from Goalhanger where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts.